So identities forged in two ways, I think we can talk about for young people. One, when you are in the majority and everyone else is like you and you're, you're trying to be like those in your community, or, or when you recognize yourself as being very different from, um, your identity could be forged in isolation from or difference from others. And both of those things hold true because young people, as I said, are not homogenous. Hello. Hello, and welcome to the Tony Square podcast with myself, Carmen, and me, Nicola. This podcast is a place for meaningful conversations about existing as two 20-something-year-olds in the 2020s. Now, I am so excited about our next guest. Um, this woman is not only an incredible, incredible academic and professor at the LSE. Um, I met her actually when I was doing my master's there two years ago. Um, and just to give you a sense of how profound she is, um, after one of her lectures, the whole hall, about 300 people, gave her a standing ovation um, just because of how impactful that lecture was. It was about um, post-colonialism. Um, just to give you a sense um, of how incredible she is. Um, as well as that, she, the, she is the most kind and caring and passionate person you can ever meet. Um, yeah, like the the unseen by many the invisible emotional labor that this woman gives and gave to that department when I was there and when I know that she continues to give um you know is is something else she's I, I honestly wouldn't have got through the year nor my dissertation without her um so I'm honestly so excited to have um this woman on the podcast and this is Shakuntala Banaji. um but yes Shaku I will let you introduce yourself Sure. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Carmen. It's so lovely to be here today. Talking to 20-somethings is probably one of my favorite things to do. And since I do this for a living, let me introduce myself. I am a professor of media, communication and social change at the London School of Economics, where I've been teaching for the last 11 years. And before that, I'd been teaching for 20 years. So that brings me up to a total of nearly wow. 30 years of teaching. I started off teaching back in the 1990s in a school in southeast London and um, I taught all the way up from year seven to year 13 and I enjoyed that enormously. I mean there's there's such a lot of wonderful stuff and discussions to be had talking about English literature and drama and theatre and music and books and films with students of age 11 but equally of age 18 and you see people going out into the world and going and doing wonderful things and those students of mine from back in the day are now doing a lot of stuff around media and communication some of them are professionals some of them have become teachers um, many many of them are parents with children older than my children so it's quite an exciting <laughs> world people are <laughs> changing a lot um, things are changing a lot the world around us is changing and I'll tell you a little bit about the work that I do now, because in the years in between being a school teacher and becoming an academic, I did a PhD in communications, but particularly with film audiences. And I was really, really interested, even in those days, in what young people, particularly between the ages of 18 and 25, um, were doing with um, films and television programs and how they were incorporating them into their identities or negotiating with the images in these films. And I watched a lot of audiences and talked to a lot of young people about politics and gender identities back in the early 2000s. And then after that, 
I started doing a lot of work on young people in politics and their participation in politics through media and through media representation and the way in which they either found themselves to be represented in media or were um, anxious because they were absent, their representations were absent. So if in, for instance, talking to a lot of young LGBTQ people in India or in Turkey, um, who would say things like, we haven't yet ever seen one single representation of our group, which ad adequately made us feel human. Um, we, we are always watching things which make us feel dehumanized or like we are mocked or we are the other. And some of that is what I teach. I teach a lot of theories and concepts around identity and representation. And then lately, I've been working on disinformation in the online sphere and misinformation. And my book with a colleague of mine called Ram Bhatt is about social media mm. and hate. And it's about to come out on the 1st of January 2022. So that's our latest experience of talking to people about their identities and the way in which those identities are linked to being attacked, both um, very viscerally in real life, yeah. so physically attacked. In some cases, we were talking to people who were from communities where they could be lynched if they said or did something out of line. And young people who felt like if they wore or didn't wear their hair in a particular way, they would be identified as belonging to a community which was dangerous, or young people who couldn't take their skin off because if they walk along the street at night in a particular neighborhood, they would be seen as an outsider and potentially attacked by the police. So um, all of that we connected in our work with the stories and narratives about hate and misinformation online. And that's what the book essentially is about. I personally can't believe we only have you for 45 minutes because I, I could go on about this for about seven <laughs> years, Jackie, honestly. You've only just introduced yourself and I feel like I've got seven billion questions. I don't even know where to begin. Seven billion with the first question. Yeah. <laughs> what a good place to start, yes. Yeah. My first question to you would be, how do you think um, identity or, or identifying ourselves shapes who we are? I guess that's the beginning, the very beginning of everything. So um, if I understand your question, perhaps there's a question which goes before it, which is, um, what is mm. identity? What is identity? Right. A lot of people have um, very fixed notions of what identity is or should be. And when we're very, very little, so let's say when we're between the ages of one and three years old, um, there are lots of people and factors which are trying to shape our identities. So there are people who are teaching us what it means to be religious, for example, or mm -hmm. not religious. There are people who are teaching us what it means to be happy and satisfied or to be, you know, to be sad and alone. Uh, many small children who are acquiring an identity for themselves are mirroring what they see around them in their parents or carers or communities. Um, they're looking at the behavior and the language used by people towards each other and towards others on the street. They mirror behaviors around fear and suspicion, but they also mirror behaviors around love and tenderness and compassion. And I think all of that goes towards making our identity, as does any kind of neglect or trauma, which takes place in the first one to five years of a child's life. So we do have some aspects of identity which are universal and shared, things around care and how much we're cared for, things around um, trauma and anxiety and um, and the relief that we might get if we're with someone who who is able to recognize who we are. 
And then we have all the group identities which start being pushed on us through um, sermons and lectures in religious settings or if we happen to be lucky enough to be in a very open and plural environment when we're young children through the multiple different choices that we start being offered about who we are and who we want to be. And so for some people, identity becomes something that they recognize as being open and fluid, which fits well with a, a series of theories, which are known as post-structuralist theories of identity. And some people are so ground down by being in very particular settings. So for instance, in some settings, just being a girl or being a woman is the very first thing, the primary thing that anyone talks about in regard to you. It might have started even before you were born with somebody saying, oh, I don't want a girl. You know, I want a boy because in this, this country or this place where I'm being born, boys are preferred. Or I don't want a girl because girls are so vulnerable. Um, or I don't want a boy because I really want to dress my little girl up in Barbie doll costumes and buy her all the pink things that there are. So some people end up with very flexible notions of what identity is and can be because they've come from an environment which gives them that opportunity. And other people, because of their circumstances, whether that happens to be social class or gender or intersection of class, gender and race or class, gender and religion, they end up with a very heavy and fixed sense of their identity. And if they step out of a particular role that they've been assigned or way of behaving or way of imagining the world, then there's danger there. And that's very true. That's equally true of things like masculinity and femininity as it is of things like race. Although it might seem that we're born into a particular race, actually we're born into a race but we're raised into how we feel about ourselves and others within that race. And a lot of people have the privilege, particularly young people who come from a majority community in a place or a community that's in power in a place, a lot of people have the privilege of not having to interrogate their identity at all. So mm -hmm. for instance, in I grew up in the 1970s and early 80s in a place called Bombay in India. And even when I was a small child, it was very clear that certain religions were given a lot of precedence and a lot of regard, whereas others were, were viewed with some suspicion. And this was quite a long time ago, way before the current um, very authoritarian fascist regime in India came to power. And back then, um, I remember as a very small kid that one of my teachers, who was from the Hindu community, was mocking the, the names that a lot of the Muslim children had. And I think I was about seven years old then. And I, I very, very clearly remember thinking to myself that I am, my identity is neither of these things, that I don't belong um, in either of these spaces, but that my identification, so here we come to what you identify with, was never going to be with the teacher who was doing the mocking and was always going to be with the child who was being mocked or with the person who was on the receiving end of, of that sense of injustice that I had as a child. And I think as we grow up, um, I wanted to introduce that new sort of identity which comes with becoming politicized about the world and we take on a stance towards justice. And this is what I study with young people looking at their political identities, their, their, their attitudes and values towards 
um, towards each other, towards issues of race and injustice, towards issues of social class and homelessness, or towards issues of climate change. And I think we we underestimate young people if we think that just the identities that have been thrust on them, or the subcultural identities that they took on when they were very young, are the only things that they can have, because they do choose particular identities related to change and justice. And that's one of the most perhaps heartening and open things that we can think of in regard to identity. But it is also a privilege to be able to make those choices. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really interesting point you make about choosing the, the ability and the kind of privilege, as you say, to choose identities. And what, from your kind of research and, and experience, how do you think young people define their identity? And in what ways is it like through, I, I don't know, what, what which avenues do they use? Well, I think I think um, to start with, a lot of young people define their identity in, in relation to their family and their community. And so um, I've worked with groups of quite religious young people who are um, who get a lot, a lot of their sense of grounding and sense of self and sense of esteem comes from how they're regarded within their religious community and how how they're, they're, the adults within that community view them in relation to that. And then as they grow older, perhaps they might question some aspects of the holy book or they might question some aspects of the practice within a community or some of them might embrace it and become even more pious than their parents in particular settings. I'm using religion here as an example, but I've seen this happening um, in in sort of multiple other situations when it comes to um, cleaving to the values and beliefs and behaviors of particular families and communities. And so young people um, are not homogenous. They, they are part of social reproduction, which is what happens when, as we grow and as we work, we contribute to remaking the world or remaking society in particular ways. So in Marxist terms, we have two things. We've got production, which is the making of things through, you know, late people's labor. And even in the digital world here, we are, we are producing something. But what we're also doing, because we're having a conversation about the world, is we are part of social reproduction. We're reproducing particular relationships, uh, relationships of power in how we talk about the world and in how we talk about power. And young people participate in that um, both because they're forced to, but also voluntarily. And some of them opt to, um, for instance, become um, on the side of the patriarchy, on the side of their, their sort of adult males in their family who say that women shouldn't do certain things or behave in certain ways. Or they they go... Um, their own way and they walk their own path and that can be quite difficult and dangerous and of course if you felt at some point when you were young um, let's say in your your early teens that you were different in some way from your family that's a spark or a catalyst for exploring a very different sort of identity so a lot of the young um agender or non-binary or trans people that I work with who are um, either advocating for others or just trying to survive will tell you that there was a moment when they didn't feel that they were like everybody else or when they they realized or recognized that they were quite different from some of the cis, perhaps heterosexual people in their communities and that this um, was profoundly disturbing and 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 
saddening when they were really alone and that when you find a community that you can belong to or even one single friend that you can talk to about this, you your own identity becomes much stronger. So identities forged in two ways, I think we can talk about for young people. One, when you are in the majority and everyone else is like you and you're, you're trying to be like those in your community, or, or when you recognize yourself as being very different from, and whether that's because you're, you're the only um, child of color in your class or your school, or because you've recognized that you aren't straight when you're 13 or 14 year, years old, or for another reason, um, your identity could be forged in isolation from or difference from others. And both of those things hold true because young people, as I said, are not homogenous. That's really interesting. And I guess what is coming into my mind is I wonder to what extent does, because you've kind of presented two two aspects there, where, as you say, one is where you recognise when you're the same as people and one where you recognise when you're different. And... I wonder to what extent does the proportion of both influence how you are as a person. So I wonder if, you know, if you define most of your identity as being super different, is that going to like, I don't know. I don't know if like my question is making sense. Um, no, that that totally makes sense. And I think that's quite right that you called me yeah. on that because it isn't just, um, you know, it isn't just a binary. It's not one or the other. It's actually a spectrum of whether you feel the same mm. or different. And it could be a spectrum on many different counts. So you could feel very similar to everyone in your family with regard to your, your religious beliefs and with regard to your language use and with regard to your class status or your caste status. But you could feel really, really different um, with regard to your sexuality. Or you could feel really angry about the way your gender is being constructed and treated by the people around you. So you might be, um, you might actually identify with, um, for want of a better word, the group that is in the majority and are oppressing other people. In many cases, you don't even think twice about telling your maid to shut up and take your teacup away. But on the other hand, you suddenly feel very oppressed and in the minority when it comes to talking about your sexuality, perhaps, or that you like girls when you're a girl. And that, that, is completely normal in the sense that it's very unusual for someone to be completely excluded in every single facet of their intersecting identity. On the other hand, the whole point of the theory of intersectionality is it allows us to see how some people's intersecting identities lead them to be very much sort of the other or othered by multiple different groups and for many different reasons. So it's very, it's not unusual to have um, brown people who are also um, working class in, in Western countries who are, and within that group to have brown queer people who are homeless or who have got very few financial support systems. And so you begin to see the layering of identity is also connected to how much or how little the different facets of your identity are in the majority or are othered by the majority community. I find that like so interesting because I think the concept of identity itself is, is so fascinating. It's so complicated. And I feel like just us as young people can we're already like really fragile as humans because we're going through a lot and we're really trying to like understand ourselves to then have this kind of extra layer of having to identify ourselves is, is almost a bit crazy and insane to think that we can kind of form it throughout, you know, 
the entirety of our lives. But I wondered then, like, in terms of all the influences that we do have, like, in our lives now, especially, like, I think we mentioned social media earlier, like, how much more intense is it? Because obviously, I, you mentioned also in your book that you're talking about disinformation and such. So how much more intense is it now? Because we're also being influenced by literally the whole world every second. So I think I think um, if I if I compare the young people that I was talking to back in 2000 who didn't have all of the social media coming at them and the young people that we've just been interviewing for our book and for some of our projects, our new work on on climate change and, and misinformation, I think you can see three things have happened. One, there's something very similar. There's a, there's, a, there's a line which hasn't really changed that much, which is that because of your age and your relative lack of financial power in, in the world, there's, there's a sense in which young people's precarious lives or, or their sense of, of, of needing to make it has not changed that much over the last 20 years. In fact, perhaps, if anything, precarity has got worse to the extent where people 25 years ago were expecting, in fact, were, were quite confident that they would be able to have a home and a job or that they'd be able to leave home and travel somewhere or, or go to another country or another, another state if we're talking about a different country. Right. So there was there was this sense that of, of sort of mobility and wanting to make it. And young people today still have that, even though their chances seem to be more limited. Um, and the second thing to say is that there was always media representation, which was limited, which had an absence of representation for certain people and uh, an overabundance of representation for others. So, you know, men, men in general and, and, and boys were more, much, much more represented than women and girls and lighter skinned and fair people were much better and more represented than darker skinned people in almost all the countries that we've looked at and in almost every style of literature, comic book, game, film, you name it. So there were always these representational um, distortions, if you like, of the world that we live in. And young people were alert to that and aware of that and commenting on that. And of course, age is also a big marker of representation. And so young people were very rarely behind the camera, very rarely the ones writing the news headlines. And I remember vividly in 2011, when the London riots took place, Almost every newspaper headline had these really gross images of one or two track-suited young people throwing firebombs as if somehow, you know, youth were associated with disruption and dis destruction. And the headlines were all written um, with, with few exceptions by people who were 40 and above. So the control of representation back then and the control of representation now were very much still in the hands of, of sort of the older generation and the wealthier, more powerful and generally male um, reporters. But the thing that really has changed is that there's now a massive, massive, massive plethora of different bits of information to choose from all over the place. And older people, as much as younger people, are falling prey to conspiracy theories and disinformation and misinformation. And disinformation, as we know, as we've heard recently, is encouraged by algorithms of big media companies like Google and Facebook because it pays. It pays to get people to click on massively sensationalist and completely untrue things far more than it does to allow 
their feeds and social media to sort of um, to populate without this kind of manipulation, with just the everyday happenings of their friends and families or of their connections and contacts. So this massive influx of disinformation and distorted information and misinformation and misrepresentation has to be balanced against the fact that because social media is, is seen as a younger people's game, there are now more younger people online also. Also doing things like you're doing here with a podcast and giving their opinions about things, perhaps completely misinformed, but definitely doing it. And sometimes we've found to be much more savvy about disinformation and misinformation than older people. So, for instance, in India, looking at WhatsApp groups, we found that many younger people were much more alert to prejudiced views than people in their 40s, 50s and 60s were, that they were much more alert to the fact that an image could be manipulated and had been manipulated for um, political gain, um, which is not to say that younger people were necessarily going out and, and voting in larger numbers for, you know, for liberal or left-leaning parties, but it was to say that their their grasp of information was not such that they were the dupes of misinformation more than their parents' generation at all. So I think this this massive influx of both means and modes of communication online has seen some really good changes. So an ability for people to speak for themselves and to represent themselves and to circulate those representations and even to debate. For instance, if you watch some of the climate debates, to debate with some of the most powerful people in the world, but it's also seen really dangerous and damaging things. And one of the things we found in our book, which we write a lot about, is how this disinformation lines up very neatly online with offline violence, harassment and discrimination. So if you happen to be from a group and, you know, since I'm talking to two young right. black women, I will say if you happen to be young black women, you are one of the groups who receives the most hate online, regardless of what you're doing. And um, even before, it's almost like even before you've stepped foot into that arena, there's already disinformation and misinformation on there about your group identity. And therefore, um, I would say that there's a significant degree of trauma that your generation will experience in constantly navigating that online world because what it does is it saves instances of hate that might otherwise come your way maybe once once a week on a bus or a train or you know as you walk into work or sort of racial microaggressions that you might experience in another context these are saved and repeatedly replayed in the online arena and so I think it's quite a traumatic space as well for 20-somethings. And it is no surprise to me at all that what we found was that a lot of people had really quite severe mental health issues from being too much online and that young people were starting to disconnect and say, we, we just we don't want to be in this space anymore or we need a break from it. Yeah, no, it's just your point there made me think immediately back to the height of the kind of Black Lives Matter movement um, last summer, where I think oh. I can speak for Nicola when I say we both experienced that 100% where, you know, we were so we were constantly torn between honestly spending hours a day on social media trying to repost and post and write and comment and, you know, talk to each other and talk to our friends about, you know, the, the kind of height, the, the kind of final heightened, you know, visibility of racial injustice. But then we also found ourselves absolutely exhausted and 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 okay. I, I don't want I don't want to say traumatized but I would definitely say 
like I, I I don't know what the the right word is. We 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 wanted to completely disconnect, but we also knew that we had to capitalize off this moment because we didn't know when next people's ears would kind of close and not really care again. So, I can completely resonate with 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 that point there. And I think you know, we are largely lucky and privileged in that you know we haven't had to experience a lot of the explicit racism that we see online. We haven't had to experience it in person, but I think even just indirectly seeing it in so on social media has such an impact and has such an effect so yeah hey guys hope you're enjoying the episode so far um i just am here to tell you if you're enjoying it please do leave a review on our apple podcast page um that really helps us and helps other listeners get a sense of what we're talking about as well thank you we had a we had a conversation basically about how sometimes you know when you feel othered from like almost the get go and you enter certain spaces it makes you like I was explaining how at work sometimes when I go into the room and I'm the only black woman sometimes I I I feel it like I'm like Oof, Nicola like you're the only one here and I'm very very like we pose the question that is there like an element of that that's self-imposed? Are we kind of putting that on ourselves because we're very aware of it? Are they putting it on us? Is it just, we've gotten to the point where we're so aware of it that we almost can't run away from it. And 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 I wonder if, you know, if you felt so confident in your identity, which I actually don't even know what that means, would you walk into those rooms in a different way? Would you have more confidence? Would you feel better? Or would you just present yourself differently if you felt like you weren't othered from the get-go? I guess is my question. That's such an interesting question. Um, let me gather myself to think about this because I think there are there are three or four different uh, angles one could take in answering that question. Of course, I, like you, have also often been the only person of color in a room, the only brown woman in a room. And sometimes that's been a heavy burden. Sure. Um, partly because I knew that I was speaking for or needed to speak for a whole lot of other people and that that what I did um, kind of was seen or stood in for um, that whole group of people, let's say, you know, Asians or South Asians in the minds of the other people I was around. And therefore, it's a delicate balance. Um, there's a concept that I use um, um, from psychoanalytic film theory in my work, and it's, it's, it's a super interesting concept. It's called whiteness as the absent center. It means that when you're, when you're sort of in a Western country, which is dominated by um, white people in powerful positions, that, that that aspect of their culture never has to be examined. It's almost like that's the norm. And everything else has to be um, has to be explained. And so I'll give you an example. So when people are telling anecdotes, often they'll say, you know, there were five people in a room and then a black guy walked in, you know, like, oh, hang on. There were five people and then a black guy walked in or, or recently um, someone was recounting something to me and they said, you know, and and one of us and one of us was queer. And, you know, so the assumption that everybody else wasn't was sort of you know, that was, and then somebody else right. said, you know, why, why in queer novels do you always have so many queer friends? As if they were like surprised that there weren't more heterosexuals around in those novels. Right. So very frequently there is an assumption that certain, certain things, heteronormative things, cisgender people, white people, or in India, upper caste, Hindus, you know, middle class people, that that's the norm, even when it isn't the norm at all. But 
that's the assumption and those people don't feel like their culture is something that needs to be investigated or questioned or even described because you tend to go off and do an ethnography of the other you do an ethnography of the other tribe the strange customs it's very rare that you'd have someone coming from bombay and sitting down and saying well hell let's do an ethnography of white professors in the london school of economics you know and let's see what these strange creatures do in their natural habitat you know how do they how do they populate their rooms with these strange fetishized objects called books it's it's just you know when does that happen and so whiteness is the yeah. absent center is something which suggests that even you know Nicola when you walk into a room and you're the only woman of color and you're not if even if you don't acknowledge it it's there so even if you're someone yeah. and i have known people and so this is the third thing i want to say i've known several young um, black women over the years who have been brought up in either white churches or sort of very white identified households and who don't see racism they claim they don't see race but to me not seeing race is actually a form of racism and therefore they don't see racism and and it came as an enormous almost earth-shattering and painful shock to them when they realized what it was and that it was there yeah. and that it was and that it was unbelievably a powerful force shaping and reshaping the people around them and how however they behaved so however much they took on the conventions of white middle class society they would always be perceived as potentially different potentially threatening and that was really shocking and traumatic to them so that's so those th- there are those three things and then the last thing to say is this is the era of the rise of um what we can call dangerous diversity it is putting really right wing really quite authoritarian black and brown people into great positions of power and watching them mm. do the smash job of destroying black and asian communities of being islamophobic of closing borders of letting refugees die and if any of us then dares to complain we get told well hang on a second your group identity is highly represented here well hang on look at the government this person this person this person they're all black they're all asian so it comes as no surprise to me that kemi badak comes along and is Oof. given the role of saying critical race theory is racist let's get oh. rid of it so you know we are living in the era of that kind of massive irony but what gives you the strength nicola when you're in that room is not just the identity that you're born with or that you have to bear but the identity you choose in relation to social justice and that's what we say back to those black and brown conservatives who are actually destroying our communities and our solidarity we say well we chose choose we chose and we choose a really different identity from you and our blackness or our brownness is really different from yours and our solidarity with white people is really different from yours you know yours may be constructed around social class and your 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 degree of wealth and ours will be constructed around mm-hmm. compassion and there are no doubt there are many people many white people and many people you know sort of in the hindu community in india who will join with these struggles for social justice that we're seeing around the world and i think that's a very powerful identity that that you know people will perhaps have for longer than any of their other identities because we won't always be 20 somethings but we can always say that we've committed ourselves to these ideals like angela davis mm-hmm. 
I guess I would ask how, as these 20 somethings within this context that you've just laid out for us, how do we continue to define ourselves and continue to kind of build our identity without actually boxing ourselves in? Mm. Um, because that's something that we kind of spoke about in our initial episodes that we, yes, we have all these aspects of our identity, but we also sometimes feel like they restrict and suppress us and, and even oppress us. And how would you say, you know, even us as us who we are, you know, as we said, relatively, you know, privileged and we, you know, we're in the UK, we're in London. How would, how can we continue to construct ourselves in a way that doesn't also box us in? Okay. Well, that's a that's the million dollar oh. question, isn't it? Because mm. yeah, yeah, and it's the one thing that cannot be bought or sold. That's going to be yeah. you, you know, your generation. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a question that really depends on context. So, if you were living in India, where things have really drifted so far towards fascism that now there are clear choices, and yeah. many people have are on one side or the other. Um, I would tell you something different, but I'll speak more to the London or to the UK context today. And we've done a lot of work, I and my colleague Sam Mejias, we've done a lot of work with young people across the UK after Brexit. And we talked to, you know, like dozens and dozens of young people outside of London too. And then recently, more recently, um, with my colleagues um, Rambat, we've done work on hate speech and misinformation with young people in, you know, in different parts of the UK. And some of the things they've told us will sort of guide me in answering this question. Because I think one of the first things I would say is that young people talked a lot about integrity and solidarity mm. and openness. And openness really, um, probably 80% of the young people we spoke to saw openness to others as one of the biggest facets of their generation and their identity at the moment. Yeah. Of course, a big question people ask is, will that go as they grow older? But I think not. I think that's something that's very integral to um, these young people's identities and will change and grow with them. So I'm, at least that's my hope. That's my optimism speaking there. Um, so that openness included an openness not just to open borders and to defending others who were being attacked, but also an openness to self-criticism. Mm -hmm. So they were more open on most counts. They were more open on issues of gender spectrum and identity. They were more open on counts of heterosexuality and, and gayness and non-binary identities. They talked a lot about those things, but they talked much more openly about those things, much more um, self-critically and self-analytically people were discovering themselves and that may just have been you know my luck um, you know as an interviewer to end up with people like that but also we tried very hard to get a real um, spectrum of people a lot of people talked about mixed race identities they c came from you know a, a parent of one color and another parent of a different color or um, multiple heritage households where you had four grandparents who all came from different countries and had you know different um, religious and um, ethnic identifications so this generation has a lot more sort of mixed um, um, ethnicities and races than previous generations in the UK and another thing they talked a lot about was being re-impoverished. So people who came from lower middle class homes, but who had slipped into poverty as, you know, um, like a divorce happened. They stayed with the mother. The mother became a single mother. And so they were forced to work when they were 16 years old or to, to support themselves. And so there was this really strong sense of the injustice of the system in terms of work and benefits. 
like really really strong scents and this was all the way up to the up to Scotland and all the way down to the south of the country we found that young people were saying very very similar things and were very sort of angry if you like and um, also very concerned about the future so there was this sense of anxiety about climate change and about the lack of commitment and a real um, um, a real sense that they didn't want to destroy the planet but that that it was being done in their name and, and for them um, going forward but not I mean to be honest not everyone wanted to be an activist not in fact many people didn't want to be activists many people wanted to point these things out for us and wanted someone else to do the work of doing it so I think there isn't necessarily a big structure that young people can you know although we may have um, Fridays for the future going on and some activism young people were struggling with their everyday lives and they just wanted to you know some of them were young mothers who had little children and others were trying to finish their degrees and also even you know pay for a share a room in a shared house which was really hard to hard to do or some were carers and were supporting older people who had disabilities or supporting a, um, a younger relative with a disability then you have a lot of young people with disabilities who are facing a really uncertain future in terms of the way care is allocated and being cut in this country and who had been forced if you like to be activists against their will because no one is just giving them anything and yet the older people who spoke to us about this generation kept on talking about this entitled generation the sense of entitlement and it it just made me so angry because the sense of entitlement was really not something that we saw in this generation um you know anxiety integrity and a desperate wish for some kind of hope, which sometimes led to a belief in very strange conspiracy theories or misinformation. You know, and I will say honestly, um, that's something it's very hard to avoid when people are desperate. You know. Yeah, I, I do feel like I feel like me and Carmen are a very like thin thin line between you know the kind of older you know we don't say anything we don't talk about anything and the very younger audacious is the word I'd actually genuinely use for them like gen z the the real gen z I call them because I just feel like they're very um forward about what they want about what they want from the world about what they want in terms of work they have no idea what they're doing like us <laughs> but I just think that there's a level of audacity that they have that we weren't really encouraged to have and I I really do find it very um refreshing to be honest because in a world where people are throwing things at you, telling you what you're supposed to be, telling you what you're meant to be doing, to, to be like, mm. actually, no, that's not okay, I yeah. think is, is amazing. Yeah, I know. Mm. I know. Well, I have a son in the house, 18, nearly 18 years old, who's exactly like that. And it's, it's quite, yeah. it's, it's scary and surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that makes for an interesting parenting sometimes. Oh, I can't tell you. I can't tell you. <laughs> it's like, I know I taught you to be critical, but yeah. relax. Not right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very good. And the last thing I should say is actually, you know, I'm, I've learned to be self-reflective from having this constant interrogation by a Gen Z person. <laughs> And I think your generation is actually very self-reflexive and very much more like questioning of yourself than previous generations were. I think that's an amazing thing in so many ways, but I also sometimes wonder if it's not a bad thing, but sometimes do we question and second guess and, and overanalyze um, 
but yeah it's that's no, is no. that my over analysis again no I, I think I think like I think your your generation well what is over analysis I mean you could argue that you're doing the right amount and everybody else isn't reflecting as much as they should so yeah. I think there's just there's a bit too much of this you know let's just get on with it you know that 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 um, keep calm and carry on mentality which right. which is actually just stifling of dissent stifling of 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 all kinds of mental health conditions so that people don't dare to talk about things and stifling of various othered identities you know and of course it's not a bad thing in the middle of an absolute crisis to be calm and try to get things done but I yeah. think doing that on an everyday basis becomes the foundation for for much much more trauma in the future so i reckon you know you stand a good chance of being really great parents oh <laughs> that's great to hear i hope i hope so too thanks jackie i'm glad <laughs> yeah, someone believes you. in me <laughs> i'm not sure about myself but i'm glad yeah. someone is rooting for me <laughs> Are there any resources or I should say, which resources would you recommend for people to read or watch or listen to, um, you know, that will help them in their plight to either define themselves or, or help, you know, I don't know. Break well, out their definitions. Um, you know, having said how much disinformation there is um, online, I also now want to turn to online resources and say that actually some YouTube videos are just amazing. So I I learned so much from just watching people like Cornell West and okay, Angela yeah. Davis for different yeah. reasons, for different reasons and on, on different issues, watching Angela Davis speaking online, um, watching her speeches and watching Bell Hooks throughout her throughout her career um you know like and and watching and listening to um podcasts by a whole range of people from judith butler and um you know just the whole range of different feminists talking about identity and struggle and some people i don't agree with necessarily but actually watching and also listening to people that one doesn't agree with it's also very interesting so on the one hand there's all of that and then I think I uh, my advice to people is always is not to get um, put into a little bubble or a silo so also to watch things like I don't know Fox News or Sky News and see what the right are doing and what they're saying and you know and why they have such a purchase over what's called the common people's imagination what, what it is mm. you know and and of course the great theorist Antonio Gramsci tells us that you have to know what makes hegemony hegemonic what makes you know like these powerful cultural ideas ones that people consent to so I think you know having a really wide range of media consumption is is sort of very good as well and then my last point would be don't give up on 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 joy and pleasure find beautiful films like you know I I cried uncontrollably through Moonlight but also it made me so hopeful oh, yeah. and there are always going to be films like that which come along and while everyone else is watching Dune and sort of yeah. arguing about how racist <laughs> it is and whether it's Islamophobic or not and those arguments are important it's also important mm. to just hang on to the things that give you joy and if that's listening to a podcast about manifestation and the universe being good to you and if it's spirituality, then do that. I mean, hang on to all the good things and the joyous things that heal you. Because if you don't do that, you'll burn out. Mm. The the final and probably the most important question, Shaku, if if you could 
tell your 20-something self anything, if you write them a letter or send them a little note, um, what would it be, if anything? Oh, I know this, like, like clockwork, this is the same thing I've been thinking over and over again for the last five years, which is that I had assumed that because I am the way I am, my children would be a bit the way I am, and boy, I am wrong. So it just, you know, I used to always think to myself, you just give loads of love and you do, you know, you are very democratic. But that very sort of love and democracy also opens up spaces for people to say, well, I wanted this and you thought this. And, you know, it opens up spaces for critique and mm. conflict, <coughs> which I had never I had never considered before. And I also hadn't considered the fact that, you know, um, my 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 sort of my beliefs about about class and my socialist beliefs would sort of end up also being quite a burden to my children and to the next generation. And, and so, you know, having grown up telling my kids, you know, this is how the world is and the world is bleak, then to them turn and say the world is bleak, I don't want to be in it is a really painful and scary thing. And so I would tell my 20 year old self, just be much more joy, joy, joy with your kids. Don't don't sort of um, talk about all the, they're going to see the bad stuff don't talk about it all no. the time so that would really be something I would tell my 20 year old self that's lovely yeah that's so insightful yeah really, really insightful we we are at the end of the interview thank you so so much thank you so much thank you Nicola. yeah it's been an incredible conversation and I know a lot of things in there that our listeners will be trying to navigate themselves and you provided a really a really grounded kind of Amazing. conversation about them yeah so I'm really, I'm really a, I am a fan and I will buy the book this isn't I was not yeah. paid everyone that's listening I will, <laughs> I will buy the book um I'm just yeah. really fascinated I feel like you know sometimes you leave a conversation wanting to know more and, I, and those are like my favorite types of conversations so thank you very much for your time thank you both and good luck with your podcast thank, thank you so much Shaku.